Welcome to History of the World Part 2, a podcast dedicated to teaching world history. Welcome back to History of the World Part 2, and this week we are starting a brand new unit. Last week in class we just finished up the Global Age of Exploration exam around that question of whether or not that time period was beneficial to the growth of human civilization. And this week we're continuing the march towards more current history by looking at really the event that kind of ties ancient history to current history. And I consider current history to be that history that starts around you know, 1880, 1900, the buildup to World War I, because World War I is really that big entry point into the last 100 years of history. Um, and so this unit, the Enlightenment, is kind of going to bridge that gap between the ancient stuff, the old stuff, the Renaissance, the age of exploration when people are exploring the world and discovering new areas, to the new stuff. And so on the first half of the podcast today, what I'd like to do is something a little bit different. Instead of talking specifically about the event we're going to be looking at in class so far, the first thing I want to do is give you today some background on this on this, this epoch of history, this era of history, because it's such a strange one to talk about, right? The global age of exploration is pretty easy to grasp. It's an age where people explore the globe, right? The Renaissance is a little bit weird, but when you compare it to Rome and you see the, the word Renaissance means rebirth, eh, it starts to make some sense. But the Enlightenment is a historical time period that a lot of people don't know a ton about unless you kind of give them some background and show them these are the connections. So today what I want to do on the first half of the podcast, that is, is just talk about what the Enlightenment is, when someone says we're talking about the Enlightenment, what do they really mean? So, the Enlightenment. What it is, is this time period where people begin to apply this idea of humanism, this thing that we saw during the Renaissance, where life on Earth matters just as much as that of the afterlife. And if you remember, during the Renaissance, people begin to apply this to, to the ideas of art. Right, and you get these beautiful pieces of art. You get music that changes. You get poetry that changes. Right, you get Shakespeare writing stories about humans rather than writing, you know, about the gods or about God. Um, and by about the 1700s or so, right, this is a very slow change. By about the 1700s, people began to apply those ideas to their local governments, and this unit's going to have a lot to do with government. And the real question that people start to ask, and kind of the crux of this, 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 this unit, is should kings, should our rulers, should the people who are in charge of us be able to do anything they want? Should they be able to do whatever they feel is right? Because before this time period, going all the way back to even a little bit before the Romans in some instances, 
kings, kings and rulers, I should say, were allowed to do whatever they wanted to do to their population. I'm the king, I'm the ruler, I'm the leader, I have the power, the rest of you work for me. And so the Enlightenment is a time period where people begin to question that idea. And what's interesting about the Enlightenment is that it's very top-down. Specifically, it is led by these people that we're going to call philosophers. And these people, these a philosopher, if you don't know, by the way, is someone who stanks through and answers very difficult questions through logic. It's a class you can take in college. Um, I wish we taught it in high school. I'd love to be a philosophy teacher because I think it could really be helpful to some students, right? Um, but it's it's the art. It's the it's the the study of answering very difficult questions. Um, and what's going to happen during the Enlightenment is these philosophers are going to be the ones who make these ideas that are going to change governments in the world. They're going to be the ones that lead the charge, usually through history. It's kind of a ground-up change, right? The people begin to think this, or the people begin to do this. But on the Enlightenment, it's a little flipped. It's going to be the wealthy, upper-class people who begin to make these questions um, and that are going to change you know, societies. Um, an example, by the way, if you're like, what does Mr. Buck mean when he talks about a philosopher and they ask big questions? Philosophers are going to focus on answering questions like, how do you know the world around you is real and you're not dreaming? How can you prove that anything is real? And that's an old philosophy question. It's been answered. Take some philosophy classes, read some philosophy books, maybe easy ones, because it can be tricky. But that's what a philosopher answers. So these philosophers specifically begin answering and asking questions about leadership, about power about who has power in a society and who should have power and what is the nature of power and where does power come from and should power be used in the ways that it's used, right? That's going to be the people that are leading the charge in the Enlightenment. Now, to give you an example of this, of how before the Enlightenment things were, if you think back to a podcast, I believe it was probably maybe in the fives or sixes, our fifth or sixth podcast in here, we talked about a king named King Henry VIII. And he's an example of the types of kings that the people of the Enlightenment wanted to get rid of. Um, if you don't know, King Henry VIII, go back a little ways, but King Henry VIII was an English king during the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation. He, uh, he wanted to get a new wife. Um, actually, he wanted to get seven new wives. He divorced and beheaded a couple of them, right? But he wanted to get seven new wives. And because the church wouldn't let him do it, he said, fine, my whole country is going to be a new religion. Everybody in my country has to follow this new religion that I'm going to make called Protestantism, which eventually becomes the Church of England. And if you refuse to do it, you were killed. And they would switch back and forth between religions and if you did that, you would be killed. Now, another example of this was also another form of power in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, if you remember from the Protestant Reformation, um, was considered the government in many places. And they would also kill people who, who questioned them. So literally, all over the world, people are being killed by their leaders for not doing what their leaders say. 
Now, what comes after this is we're going to look at real quick today at what some of these questions these Enlightenment philosophers actually had were um, to examine some of their new changes. So, some names you might recognize, and again, these are not the most important things, but it's going to help you get a level of understanding. One guy who's going to be very important to the change in American government is a guy named John Locke, who wrote a book in 1690 called The Two Treatises of Government, where basically he argues that government should be small, they should not be large, and if the government does not protect the people's rights, they should be able to overthrow that government. This is going to be one of the main guys who leads the American Revolution, which we'll get to later, right? He also argued that all men are good and that every human being on earth has this thing called a natural right, which they're given at birth, which is the right to life, liberty, and property. And governments only exist to protect those rights. The only reason a government should exist, according to John Locke, was so that it can protect its citizens' right to life. It can protect its citizens' rights to liberty or freedom, and it can protect its citizens' rights to property. He's going to be a major influencer in American government, uh, which was becoming an idea at this time. Now, another guy who pops up, we have this guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He was obviously a French guy, and he has a very interesting idea he came up with called the social contract. Um, and he wrote, that's the name of his book. He wrote it about 1760, about the time America was becoming a country. Um, and in his ideas, in his philosophical ideas, he said the entire society is more important than the people in that society. What matters more is that everyone survives more than any one person's individual rights, right? And he, he also argued that citizens should be allowed to create their own laws for their own society and government should only enforce those laws. He's going to be a big influence in the French Revolution, which is going to be the next topic we talk about this in this unit. A few other people that come along. We have a guy named Voltaire, who was a philosopher as well as a writer. He wrote a lot of plays and things, wrote a lot of stories, a lot of essays. He was very anti-slavery at a time when most places were still fine with it. He was also very in favor of accepting all religions, freedom of religion. That's kind of his big idea. And he also argued a lot for freedom of speech. People should be allowed to, within a government, say what they want and believe what they want. And you can see little tastes of his, his ideas, and especially um, the American government that gets created around this time. Another guy who's going to kind of be important, uh, we see less of his stuff in America, um, but we do definitely see them, depends on which way you look at things, is a guy named Thomas Hobbes. He's pretty much the opposite of John Locke. He believed that all men are evil. And he said, if men are not controlled, we will fight, rob, and oppress each other. He said, that's what we do. Um, and so he believed in this thing called natural law. Essentially, this idea that uh, laws should be created, that everyone has to follow, simply because if not, men will kill each other. And I say men being humans, right? Um so he believed that government should be very large, and he believed government should be very powerful, because if not, we would all just murder each other, essentially. Kind of a downer, not a very happy person, probably, but an interesting idea that you do see pop up in some governments. You could easily argue some of those ideas exist in American government. And lastly, and this is going to be a big, important guy who's going to pop up, especially when you guys are juniors and seniors, uh, this guy named Baron de Montesquieu, another French guy who believes that who who wrote this thing 
uh, about checks and balances. He believed that government's power should be divided and that no area of any government should have too much power. You should not have one person in charge of the whole government. You should have different people in charge of different parts of the government. Therefore, not one person takes over, right? So he believed every government should have one branch who writes laws. Every government should have one branch who enforces the laws and then one branch who interprets the laws. And you probably haven't learned this yet, depending on, you know, who's listening. But if you're in my class, you haven't learned this yet because you haven't taken American government. His ideas are going to kind of be the organization that sets up all of the American government. And so, in summary, in closing with this, um, the Enlightenment starts. And again, those philosophers aren't the most important thing. We're not going to learn them, but they give you some background. These are the guys that are coming up with the ideas that people are going to read in order to change their governments. But the basic idea is that the people matter in a government. The leaders should not be able to do whatever they want to do. And so people begin to question the power of the government. And what happens is this enlightenment idea takes hold. And after the break, you're going to see one of the first effects of these new ideas taking hold and what they do. So stay tuned right after the break and we'll get into what we're learning this week in class, as well as a little bit of history behind that learning. everybody. Welcome back. So the second half of the podcast today, a little bit different since we're starting a new unit, rather than doing just kind of an additional piece of history that kind of connects to what we're learning. On the second half today, I want to give you a little bit more background about our topic. Um, This week in class, we are talking about um, the very first event that really kind of sets off the Enlightenment, and these ideas of these philosophers when they come to the table with, these are the changes we want to make, right? And that event is one that you probably know pretty well. It's the uh, American Revolution, right? In the late 1700s, America decides that based upon all these Enlightenment ideas, we're going to throw off the the, the colonizers. We're going to get rid of the English as our um, colonizers who are our, our government also, and we're going to make our own. That's how America is born. And it's also the first event that leads to a lot of changes because what we're going to see happen down the road is this event leads to the French Revolution, leads to a Haitian Revolution, leads to Latin American revolutions against the Spanish, leads to um, revolutions in India and revolutions all over, right? It's kind of like an event in history with a domino effect where once one country does it, other countries take those ideas and do it as well. And so this week in class, we're really going to be working on answering the question of, was the American Revolution virtuous? Was it a good thing? Did it have good reasons for happening? Were they all based on Enlightenment ideas? And was it for the betterment of everybody? Um, And we have some documents. I will go through them with you in a second. But the first thing I want to do today is give you guys a little bit of background, just about the beginnings of the American Revolution, right? And it all goes back to those philosophers 
in many countries in the world begin to want to incorporate them into their government. In the American colonies, there's one such place, right? A colony is a place um, where a piece of land is controlled by another country, specifically us and the British. And in 1756, um, kind of the tensions start to raise between us and England, these people who are controlling us. One of the events along the way that leads to these problems um, is uh, there's a war, which some of you might have learned in eighth grade, called the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, depending on who you ask. But essentially, in 1756, Britain and France go to war against each other, and they fight over a territorial dispute in Europe, not even in America. They're fighting over an issue between those two countries. And the war is going to spill over into the New World. It's going to spill over into America. And in this war, France is going to hire a bunch of Native Americans to fight against us. And the British are going to force Americans as well as the British to fight for them. Uh, And Britain defeats the French. They win. War is over. Britain is won. And a lot of territory that belongs to the French now belongs to the English. That's how Louisiana... and and places like that kind of start to come into American hands. But why this matters is because what comes next. After the French were beat, the British have to pay for this war, right? They had accrued a good number of war debts, um, meaning they'd borrowed money from other countries to make bullets, to make, you know, to train an army, blah, blah, blah. And the British king, his name was King George III, he decides that he's going to have the colonies. He's going to have the Americans, where a lot of this war was fought, his colony in the Americas. He's going to have them pay for the war. And in his argument, he says the war was fought to protect them, so they have to pay up. And so he enacts a whole bunch of taxes on the American people. We have the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, some of these I'm sure you've heard of, the Declaratory Act, the Townshend Act. And these are all over the course of four to five years where Americans are paying more and more and more and more and more and more money to the British government because the British government decided to fight at a war and the Americans are going to have to pay for it. And so finally, colonists begin to resist, right? They come up with that phrase, no taxation without representation, the consent of the governed. They start to say, well, you can't tax us. You can't be in charge of us if we don't want you to be in charge of us. And we have some events that lead up to problems. We have the Boston Massacre, where five Americans are killed by British troops. Then we have the Boston Tea Party, where Americans go into the harbor and dump a whole bunch of goods into the harbor dressed as Native Americans. And then, you know, tensions rise even further till eventually we end up with the Revolutionary War. Finally, the Americans have had enough, 1776, and they full-on declare war on their colonial overlords, the British. Um, they're going to fight a war, and if we win, we're going to be free of you. We're going to make a new country called America. And if we lose, obviously you stay in charge of us. And We live in America now. This podcast is made in America. We're in an American school, so you know the outcome of this war, obviously. The Americans beat the British in this war, and America is formed, right? 
but it's all based on those ideas of the philosophers, those enlightenment philosophers. People should have the right to choose who they govern. Government should help the people, blah, 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 right? We saw those philosophers in the first part of the podcast. And so in class, what we're going to be doing is looking through a good number of documents to start to formulate an argument about whether or not the American Revolution was a virtuous thing or not. And this week, there are a good number of documents. We have up to five, I believe, looking over it right now, about five different documents, kind of a bigger one. But the work we're going to have is a little easier. Rather than go through every single document in great detail in class, we're going to be looking through these documents to help us decide whether or not the American Revolution was a virtuous thing, whether it was made to help the people of America, and based on these Enlightenment ideas, or whether or not it wasn't so much. So what I'd like to do to finish up this podcast today, and this is going to take a couple minutes, but I'd like to go through and read each of these to you, um, these sources, give you a little bit of background on them, and then in class we'll kind of go over them in more detail. So let's get into this. The first document we have this week is a document from the First Continental Congress. Um, and the First Continental Congress was a meeting of delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies in Philadelphia of 1774, um, right in the heart of the Revolutionary War, um, complaining about these taxes. And so the first source we have comes from that. And it says this, the elected delegates of this Congress declare that the inhabitants of the English colonies in North America by the laws of nature and the English constitution have the following rights. They are entitled to life, liberty, and property. There's that John Locke piece. That the foundation of English liberty and of all free government is a right of the people to participate in their legislature. And as the English colonists are not represented in the British parliament, they have the right to their local legislatures where their right of representation can alone be preserved in all cases of taxation and internal government. But out of necessity and the mutual interest of both countries, we cheerfully consent to the acts of the British Parliament, except for those related to taxation, that it is necessary to end the acts of Parliament that are violations of the rights of the colonists in order to restore harmony between Great Britain and the American colonies. So that first source, kind of a quick little summary of what it says, is that this first source is very gentle with the British. It says, yeah, you know, we don't like these taxes, but you guys are all right, which is kind of wild to think about that the war had kind of begun by this point, but a lot of the leaders of America were saying, well, let's just calm down. Let's just pay these taxes. We, we don't hate England, right? But then we have some more sources. Document B comes from a guy named Lord Dunmore. It's a ridiculous name. He was the governor of Virginia. He writes this in 1775. The, the war has been going on about a year by the time he writes this. He says this, I had always hoped that Great Britain and this colony might be able to reach an agreement without being forced to take this unpleasant but now absolutely necessary step. However, armed militias who have fired on His Majesty's boats and a newly formed army, which is now marching to attack His Majesty's troops and to destroy well-behaved colonists, force me to take this step. Ordinary law cannot bring these traitors and their assistants to justice and cannot restore peace and good order to this colony. Therefore, I have decided to issue this proclamation that until justice is brought and peace is restored, I execute martial law, uh, where the, the military is in charge of police work, throughout this colony. In order to restore peace and order, I require every person capable of bearing arms to submit to His Majesty's flag. Those who fail to do so will be seen as traitors to his majesty's crown and government and can be legally punished with death, confiscation of land, etc. 
In order to force this colony to a proper sense of their duty, I further declare, declare that all indentured servants, Negroes, or others belonging to rebels that are able and willing to bear arms are freed if they join his majesty's troops as soon as possible. I further order his majesty's loyal subjects to keep the money they owe in taxes until peace is restored or until the proper authorities require them to be paid. Um, so this guy, he's telling the people of his, of his, his colony, Virginia, to fight for Britain. Say, we have to get these rebels out of here. We're going to fight for the British. Document C comes along, a guy named Thomas Paine. He's, a, he's an author and an activist. He was very pro-America becoming its own country. Uh, he wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense uh, right in the middle of the war, and he says this, the evil her of hereditary succession concerns mankind, meaning kings giving power to their sons. Instead of making sure that good and wise men are kings, it opens a door to the foolish, the wicked, and the improper. It is oppression. Men who see themselves as born to reign and others to obey become disrespectful. Their world is so different from the rest of the world that they have little opportunity of knowing its true interests. When they become king, they are frequently the most ignorant and unfit of anyone throughout the lands. In short, monarchy, kingship, has laid the world in blood and ashes. The nearer any government is to being a republic, the less need there is for a king. Any dependence on Great Britain tends to involve us in European wars. It puts us in disagreement with nations who would otherwise be our friends and against whom we have no anger or complaint. As Europe is our market for trade, it is in America's true interest to steer clear of European arguments, which we never can do while dependent on Britain. As for government matters, Britain cannot do this continent justice. Our government business will soon be too important and intricate to be managed by a power so distant from us and so very ignorant of us. To be always running three or 4,000 miles with a tail or a petition, waiting four or five months for an answer, which then requires five or six more months to explain, will in a few years be looked upon as foolishness and childishness. A government of our own is our natural right. This guy, obviously very anti-Britain, anti-kings, very pro, let's build America, let's make a new country. Document D is interesting, going on. <clears throat> Document D um, is written by uh, two married people, Abigail Adams and John Adams. They were both married. John Adams was a Massachusetts delegate, meaning he was a guy that spoke for Massachusetts. They both wanted to make their own country away from Britain. And John Adams is going to become the second president of the United States, by the way. Um, at the time these letters were written, women colonists had nearly no opportunities for independence from men. Married women could not legally own property, vote, testify in court, keep their own wages, and they had no legal protection against abuse by their husbands. So this one is interesting because it's going to show us how one facet of the American public, women, felt about this war that's coming down the pipe. And so the first one comes from Abigail Adams writing her letter to John Adams in 1776. She says this to her husband. In the new code of laws, which I suppose you will need to make, I desire that you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than, to your, than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember that all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to stir up a rebellion and will not be bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. John Adams replies, uh, April 14th, about a month after she writes, he says this, as to your extraordinary code of laws, I can only laugh. We have been told that our struggle against Britain has loosened the bands of government everywhere, that children and apprentices were disobedient, that schools and colleges had grown turbulent, that Indians disregarded their guardians, and Negroes grew disrespectful to their masters. 
But your letter was the first indication that another tribe, more numerous and powerful than all the rest, had grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy that I won't blot it out. Depend on it, we know better than to get rid of our masculine systems. Ooh, so he's kind of getting back in his wife's business there, saying you're not going to get to have what you want as a woman in America. Sorry. Going on, our fifth document, the Declaration of Independence. You can't talk about the Revolutionary War without mentioning this. Um, this is an excerpt from it. Thomas Jefferson wrote this, June 1776. Um, uh, the Second Continental Congress voted to, to declare independence July 2nd, 1776. Two days later, this is written, or this is adopted, rather. It says this, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are provided by their, their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are created among men, receiving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to create new governments. The present king of Great Britain tried to establish an absolute tyranny over these states. He has tried to prevent the population of these states by refusing to pass laws to encourage, encourage foreigners to migrate here. He has created many new offices and sent swarms of officers to harass our people. He has kept armies among us in times of peace without the consent of our legislatures. He has worked with Parliament to, suggest, to subject us to the following legislation, for sheltering large numbers of armed troops among us, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for fake offenses. He has, stole, he has stolen from our seas, ravaged our coasts, and destroyed the lives of our people. He has stirred up insurrections among us. He has tried to bring the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an indistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions, onto the colonists of the frontier. We have petitioned for remedies in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been unanswered only by repeated injury. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, declare that these united colonies are and, and of right ought to be free and independent states. So very famous document in American history, obviously, talking about how we're not going to listen to, the, to the, the king anymore. Very lastly here, we have one more document. George Washington, first president of America, obviously, writes a, a little bit here. Um, these, these are excerpts from his letter ordering what came to be called the Sullivan Campaign against the tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy who was allied with the British in the war. And he writes this about these people. He says, you will command the expedition against the hostile tribes of the six nations of Indians. The immediate objectives are the total destruction and devastation of their settlements and the capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible. It will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent them from planting more. Troops should completely destroy all their settlements so that their country may not be merely overrun but destroyed. Allow me to suggest general rules to govern your operations. Make rather than receive attacks with as much force and violence, shouting and noise as possible. Whenever the troops have an opportunity, rush on with the ho war hoop and fixed bayonet. Nothing will terrify the Indians more than this. You will not by any means listen to any proposal of peace before you have very thoroughly destroyed their settlements. Our future security will be in their inability to injure us. The distance to which they are driven and the terror with which they are punished will inspire them. So George Washington talking very badly about Native Americans there. And so what we're going to do in class is take all these documents and begin to pull out pieces about whether or not the American Revolution was a good thing or a bad thing, whether or not it was truly wholesome 
or whether or not it kind of had some insidious pieces to it. And so I'll see you guys in class. Thank you for listening. Uh, next week, we will start talking a little bit more about the revolution that comes after this, the French Revolution. See you in class. Bye.